You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to The Authenticity Show wherever you get your podcasts and find us on social media. This episode is about games, mental games, physical games, creative games designed to open up new possibilities in your life, break you out of a stuck situation, or help you achieve whatever goals you want to achieve. Carlos and Satch draw on their extensive experience in the fields of occupational therapy, acupuncture, hypnotherapy, and NLP to give you these really cool life hacks. Very practical information in this episode, and I hope you learn as much from this conversation as I did. What movie is this? Would you like to play Thermonuclear War? <laughs> I don't remember, but it sounds familiar. War Games. Was it War Games? Yeah, with Matt, Matthew Broderick. That's funny. I actually watched the first like five or ten minutes of that a couple weeks ago. Did you? Yeah. I don't know why. I just I saw it and I watched like the first little bit. Kind of a fun movie, actually. It is a fun movie. Yeah. But I AI. loved it when I was young. Yeah. But uh, seriously, or rather playfully, would you like to play a game? Let's playfully play a game. Okay, so I'll I'll ask you a series of similar but different questions, and you have to answer it with another question. Okay, let's try. And the question must be an answer. Why does authenticity show? When one is authentic, how could that not show? What does authenticity show? What does authenticity not show? How does authenticity show? Does authenticity show now? What if authenticity showed? Do you think authenticity show should begin now? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that fun? That's interesting. My own little middlings with the world of theater has created all kinds of fun exercises and games that I wish I could do more with, you know, dare I say normal people that mm-hmm. are outside of the world of theater. Yeah. One of them is, is the counting game where you How's get, a, where, where you get a, a room full of people. And I've done this with, um, some of my students before, mm-hmm. you know, this is an exercise. The counting game is it's the, it's the blind counting game. So everybody in the room closes their eyes and you pick a number to try to get to, usually 10. Okay, it's, it's, you're, you're going to count to 10 as a group. But with everybody's eyes shut, any random person can say the next number. But if two people say the same number at the same time, you have to start all over from the beginning. So if we had 10 people in this room and we all closed our eyes, somebody would have to say one, then somebody else would have to say two, then somebody would say three, And then if two people said four, oh, oh, we start over from the beginning and the group's got to get to 10. And what's nice about it is it's an exercise in teaching you to listen, to pay attention, to feel the people around you. Hmm. You can begin to sense when somebody else is going to talk or you can sense when there's going to be a little bit of silence for a while and you have your opportunity and it trains you in that sensitivity so that when you're on stage, 
you're not just saying your lines, you're actually listening to one another and responding to one another. It's a sensory acuity game. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. we we do things similar to that in NLP training. Oh, yeah. yeah. There was a theater exercise that we used to do where um, you're, you're given a scenario, but both people can only say one thing. You might, you, like, like your lines might be coffee and tea. So you have, to, you have to walk into the room and the only thing I can say is coffee and tea and the only thing she can say is coffee and tea, yet we have to act out the scene where this person's upset and I'm trying to cheer her up or something like that, right? Huh. And it, it gets you out of using the words that we normally use every day because we, we have to use you know, the, the meaning of the words to get an impact on the audience, right? But what if you can't get an impact from the words? You have to get the impact only from how you say words that don't fit. So your, your timbre, your volume, your rhythm, mm-hmm. your, uh, your rate or speed, right. Uh, right. tonality, body and, language. Exactly. And, and you might have to um, uh, really use creative body language to get a message across. You know, yeah. Um, you might have to to mismatch your tone with your facial expression mm-hmm. to create some kind of silly irony or something. You know, mm-hmm. that you just how do you capture that, right? When you can only say coffee and tea or or whatever the words happen to be, you know. But um, all of these things certainly play with the usual pattern of our senses, you know, and the usual yeah. pattern of our our ability to predict. It puts you outside the pattern, which means that you're still in a pattern, but you're in a different one, mm-hmm. an expanded one. You're coloring outside the boxes um, in a larger box because you're still on the piece of paper yeah. <laughs> um, somewhere. Um, but that's what's cool about it is it's it's definitely what people describe uh, describe when they say ingenuity, creativity, out of the box thinking, mm-hmm. um, you know, responsiveness, mm-hmm. you know, rather than reflexive or, or reaction. Yeah. Um, we've heard words like out of the box thinking, like, Mm -hmm. like you just mentioned. And it's interesting because I found that sometimes that works and other times all it does is stick me into another familiar box. Yeah. Oh, it's time to start thinking outside of the box. I've done this before. Yeah. Right. And then you get just a stuck, um, so it can be really useful to notice something that you just simply hadn't, you know, hadn't been noticing just moments ago. Definitely. For the listeners, I think I'll just go ahead and mention this. We started this recording with several minutes of silent meditation, right? And I think we all kind of wanted to get into that space of um, maybe noticing something new, something different, trying to see what could arise in each of us or between us before we started to, rec- to record. And, and um, I certainly didn't expect we'd be talking about this. Yeah, I didn't either. But to, to piggyback off of what you were mentioning as, a, as, a, as another game, the last game you mentioned, mm. when I've done coaching for, for public speaking and, and things like that, there's a game or let's say a challenge or an exercise that's done that involves a free flow of speech that is modified primarily by the background music. Okay. So you let, let's say you, you recorded five different tracks of music, mm-hmm. and your goal is to change your 
tonality significantly to match the subjective feeling that you're getting from the music. Got it, right. And so you could be right in the middle of telling this story about how you got pulled over and suddenly the officer's there and you and it switches to some kind of sexy, bluesy kind of thing and you've got to be real seductive with your voice or whatever. And so it's, it's an exercise in vocal flexibility, the delivery style so that you can push yourself to become more dynamic. That's the idea. Mm-hmm. And it's not I easy, like that. Yeah, I but like it's that. fun. That's, that's really cool. Some yeah. are easier than others. For, yeah. for most people, like they'll find a couple of them are easier and a couple of them are really hard. Uh-huh. Um, but if you keep doing it and you keep challenging yourself and allow yourself to be um, not good at it, as you know, mm-hmm. you got to let yourself be bad at shit before you can be good at shit. But if you do that and you become vulnerable, then of course it, it does push you to be more dynamic in uh-huh. your vocal delivery. Yeah. And it certainly um, enhances your creativity in yeah. whatever it is that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's funny because, you know, talking about some of these little games and strategies that, that we're sharing from, from our previous experiences, one common theme that I see, and this is something that we have talked about on the show. We talked about this, um, in our dream episode is that that's what the brain does when we dream and it does it for the purposes of problem solving, right? It's creative problem solving. It's you take two different things that seem kind of random like maybe they don't go together but you just stick them together and see what comes of it Mm. like if you were to you know like like this this game that you just explained with you know public speaking and music um if you're you're telling a sad story but you're doing it to the theme song of eye of the tiger those seem like a mismatched pair of concepts yet it could be really creative in how it affects the way you're giving your delivery or the way you present to the audience. Right. And so there's a lot of creativity that comes out of these things. And that's one of our themes for the show, right? It is health creativity and the quest for excellence. For sure. Um, Well, you can get, you can get uh, something of value from both sides of that coin. Meaning if you discover that there's an element to this, that's useful, that's great. Mm-hmm. If you become uber clear that it's a real mismatch and that's definitely not the direction you're going, well, you still gain something. Yeah, you know that now. Yeah, you've yeah, got that strong yeah. you know, understanding of the contrast. I've done that before um, doing like pushing hands work in, in Tai Chi. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of a fun exercise to let somebody get you in a joint lock or to... Um, give you a particular push, like a nice easy push to where you feel like you're stuck, like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. And then just stop and then pick some move from the form and just go, right now, if I were to do, you know, uh, needle a needle to the bottom of the sea, yeah, what would happen? And I think, well, how would I even do that from this position? And then find a way to do it anyway. And it'd be, a, it's always amazing to me how effective it is, how, how it will take the other person's balance. And I wouldn't have thought of it unless I asked myself the question, well, if I'm stuck in this awkward position, what would happen if I did, and then you name the move and then try it? It's incredible what can come of that. It is incredible how often we've seen the example that there are many ways to skin a cat, many roads that lead to Rome, many mm-hmm. options that could work. Yeah. We very often as human beings, as uh, adults who are trying to find our way through the world and figure out 
who we are, what we are, and how we can do what we are mm-hmm. in the world in a positive way. Uh, pass through that point where we're learning methods and methodologies and we start to gain some skills, but we're still not sure of ourselves a hundred percent. Yeah. And, you know, we're passed through the, you know, you know, the, the, the feelings, um, of, am I going to be able to do this to, yeah, I think I will be able to do this until eventually you become, no, I know I can do this. And it's Mm -hmm. because we, while we're still thinking we can do it, and it's like a possibility, we struggle trying to apply a technique to a situation. Yeah. Well, which technique do I need to use for this? Yeah. You know? Yeah. But as we've come to understand by studying deeper uh, topics and, and developing skills in those topics, you reach a point where there's creativity that comes in when you understand the underlying principles of something and you begin to instead of looking at um, challenges as an opposition to you, you look at them as invitations to explore. Mm-hmm. So that if you, if you feel uncomfortable, that that's actually a good thing. You can be comfortable with the discomfort. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this today in my office when I was working with somebody. I actually admitted to them, I said, you know, what's really cool about this is... is I could do a hundred different techniques with you, but what I appreciate is diving in and seeing what will emerge when we are both honest and vulnerable and connected in this uh, system that we've created by entering into this session, which is a bit of a contract between two people, right? Mm. I'm acting as the facilitator, the hypnotherapist or guide or whatever. They're acting as the person who has an issue or a series of issues or something that they want to explore. But the truth is I've got issues too, and I'm exploring things as well. Yeah, yeah. And I'm definitely serving my sacred duty by facilitating this other person, but I've got to keep myself on the edge of my seat. Sometimes actually on the edge of my seat, sure. not just metaphorically, because I want my physiology to be primed and ready to jump in and embrace whatever signals I might be getting through my body, which are unconscious mm-hmm. uh, responses and reactions, mm-hmm. as well as anything I might be receiving in the form of a, a mental picture or an inner voice, um, you know, any kind of meta kinesthetic sensations or visceral senses or emotions. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to explore that. And of course, there's some knowledge and expertise in that, but there's also a genuine sense of, I don't know what the fuck is about to happen. And it's scary. Yeah. And I've learned to be uh, very appreciative of that, to, to say, this is, a, this is a good thing. We should both be a little scared. We should both be a little bit nervous about what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And very often now, I'm in a situation where I'm um, with a, a highly intelligent person with a kind of complex set of issues that, that, that uh, on surface or face value, most people who are coaches or whatever might look at that and go, hmm, what the hell am I going to do? This doesn't fit into my book of NLP techniques. You right. know, like, yeah, what, like what the hell am I supposed to do here? But yeah, because totally. the, the wrong questions were asked, the structure really wasn't uh, a deep 
a deep understanding of structure. It was a surface. It was what they were consciously presenting. But what they're consciously presenting, if, if it's, if it's a, an experience that they're sharing from their head, their head mind, they haven't gotten underneath into the, the actual display of whatever behavior or problem that they're working through. Mm. They're still in this detached meta description that's very generalized, perhaps. Mm-hmm. They haven't actually um, you know, gone under the water and allowed themselves to really fully submerge into the experience in front of me. And that's so important. Just like when we're playing games, mm-hmm. we have to be fully engaged in the game, otherwise we're not really playing the game, it's boring. Right. But when, when we dive into that together, like in a session or whatever, or if we're playing a game, same thing, we're getting all of our body into it, which means it's not just a head or cerebral mental experience. It becomes, you know, a heart experience, a gut experience. You know, you're getting your hands dirty, yeah. so to speak. That's what I love. And I'm learning to, to really embrace that and, and celebrate the fact that it is scary not knowing and that's a beautiful thing. That fear not knowing is what I love because more times than not now, those things turn into profound sessions that I'm walking away from feeling excited because instead of this robotic response, yeah. it becomes a dynamic living response that's creative. Yeah. I don't feel like I'm stuck in a box. Yeah. That's also how you avoid job burnout. Yeah. You know, um, if, if you're in a, in a creative profession or even in a not so creative profession, even if you're, you know, the receptionist, (laughs) you know, at some company, right. Um, we get tired and worn out and bored and uninspired when we use the same responses, the same strategies all the time. Mm. And what you're describing is, um, knowing that you can go into a situation without a preconceived idea about which technique or which set of techniques I plan to use and instead um, go in with um, an attitude of improvisation yeah, and trust that the right strategies will present themselves. And if they don't, that's okay because new strategies will present themselves. Yeah. Because that's the place that you were just describing, the, this place that you were just describing to me is the place where all strategies came from to begin with. Right. Right. Every strategy, every technique, every style that we use originally came from that same space that you were just describing. Yeah. It's underlying theoretical constructs, not right. uh, what someone has worked out in detail. That's a, you know, a trail of techniques that was left behind that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, we know a lot of musicians. Our wonderful sound engineer, Oliver, is, is a musician. Um, our good friend Danny is, is a musician. And these guys do plenty of jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, jazz. And all, and all that jazz. And all that jazz, yeah. Jazz, you know, uh, is what you're talking about, right? It's improvisation. Yeah. But um, I could see how there could be a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of fear, and not fully knowing what you're going to do, but trusting that you're going to follow these principles and mm-hmm. right. But what about the first people that, that created that the first people that invented it? Um, 
they didn't go in with this idea that they're going to do jazz. They just went in with this idea that they're just going to explore and play. And that's where all these things came from, from intelligent, well-trained people that discovered these concepts and then were able to describe them and categorize them and share them. Um, I've probably experienced what you're describing the most when I, when I was doing occupational therapy. Hmm. Every time I walked into a room, you know, you walk into a, a, a patient's room at some kind of healthcare facility, you really don't know what today is going to be like. And you're going in to see a patient who might have had a serious illness, a serious injury, you know, a stroke, something like that. And the person's dangerous. The person could fall and, you know, they're on your watch. They're going to fall and crack their head open, right? Fall and break a hip. Yet we have to start getting up. We have to start putting on their clothes again. We have to, somebody's got to be the one to say, all right, this is the first time we're going to try to use the toilet, <laughs> this person, right? Yeah. Nobody has gotten this person out of bed since their stroke. And I'm going to be the guy and today's the day because right now when I walked into the room, they said they have to go to the bathroom. I didn't plan to go in and take them to the bathroom. I plan to go in and see how they are, see what they're doing. How are they feeling? What do we want to do today? It's what was presented. Yeah. And the what presented itself or what emerged. Exactly. And when that person says, you know, I kind of feel like I need to, I want to come to therapy, but I need to get on the toilet first. And I know that I'm kind of busy and I got to get my treatments done for the day. And I say, well, you know what? How about we make that part of your treatment? Mm -hmm. And I don't know, is this person going to be safe? Is this person going to be dangerous? Is this person going to crap all over the floor? <laughs> right? I have no yeah. idea what's going to happen in there. Right? Yeah, right. That can be an unnerving moment, but at the same time, it's filled with potential. It's filled with possibilities. Like this person could actually, for the first time, realize that they can actually get better and maybe might be able to go home, you know? Um, or this might be a complete disaster, yeah. right? But again, if it's a complete disaster, you realize Could this person is not ready for that, right? Right. This person is not going to the bathroom for a while, but I know that's where we're at. So where do we start? Where's the beginning of going to the bathroom now? The beginning is how do you sit up on the edge of the bed? Because mm. that's not easy for a lot of people, mm -hmm. you know? Um, uh, there's tremendous potential in there. And then so therapists over the years have come up with all kinds of neat strategies and techniques and pieces of equipment and little, little tips and tricks for how to get there safely and how to, you know, not slip and fall and how to make sure you back up and touch the back of your knees to the toilet before you sit down so that you know where it's at. You know, all these types of things that we teach people to do, those techniques emerged from countless experiences when the therapist just said, oh, well, let's give it a try. Mm -hmm. Let's see what happens. Let's find out what we learn. But one of those strategies is the idea of upgrading and downgrading. Are you familiar with this concept? No, I don't think so, this? no. So this is a unique occupational therapy concept. Well, we call it upgrading and downgrading. And okay. other people do this in different ways, but this is kind of our unique terminology. Mm. Is we say that for every client who's trying to learn how to do something new. So for us, that's a person who's rehabilitating, but that could be anybody out there doing anything. That could be a parent teaching a kid how to tie their shoes. It could be you working with a client and you're diving into some emotionally vulnerable, highly charged topic or whatever it might be. 
what you're trying to do is, is this is the basic structure. This is, this is the technique. This is one of the techniques that has emerged from these scenarios is you go in and you say, what am I trying to do here? I'm trying to find the just right challenge, the quote, just right challenge. Mm. So what am I trying to find? The just, just right, right challenge, challenge, right? So I'm trying to find, Goldilocks. yeah, I'm trying to find, again, what you described earlier as you want the person and you to be challenged to the point where you can get it right some of the time or you're almost getting it right. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but also to where there's a chance of failure, but we're using this concept called upgrading or downgrading to adjust the level of difficulty in order to find the just right challenge. Got it. So when we start to take the person through an activity or you know whatever it is you're trying to do with them, and we might realize the way we're doing this, the way I'm presenting this is maybe a little too challenging. So how can I adjust the way I'm doing this to make it a little bit easier, but I can't make it too easy, right? Or I look at it and I say, this isn't quite challenging enough to make this person have to stretch, to reach, to dig a little bit, right? So I want to almost guarantee success, but do it through challenge. Mm. And that's upgrading and downgrading the task. And this is a, a neat, fun technique that anybody could apply in anything that they're doing in any moment. So if you're that receptionist who's bored with her job, or um, you know the, the, the guy who works in a warehouse who is so sick and tired of the repetitive nature of what he's doing every day, he just can't stand it anymore. You know what I mean? Mm. You start to ask yourself, how can I create the just right challenge in what I'm doing so that I learn something new, I get better, I work on myself, right? but I also guarantee success, right? How can I upgrade the task a little bit? Ooh, how could I downgrade the task a little bit? You know, maybe stocking these shelves can be an exercise in fill in the blank, Hmm, you know, whatever it is you want in your life. Now, how could I upgrade this task to really strive a little bit to increase my creativity or how can I improve my relationship by stocking this shelf, (laughs) you know, and and start to mismatch things on purpose in order to to discover something new. So I love that. Yeah, that's very useful. Um, Definitely didn't know that, that terminology, but I get the concept and, and that's definitely, um, the best way to teach is to get people into that sweet spot, the Goldilocks space. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where, the honey where, hole. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <clears throat> no comment, but, yeah. uh, yes. <laughs> um, and when it comes to game playing, when it comes to working, uh, I'm sure that I'm not alone in that I've had jobs that I just didn't enjoy, you know, that, that I was doing in the world. I mean, I remember I was working for uh, a not-to-be-named uh, telecom equipment resale company. Um, oh, sounds great. Yeah, and it was um, it was not fun. Let's put it that way. I hate uh, it already. Yeah, it was. Um, I thought it would be interesting because it was technology and, and uh, you know, I like technology. I like learning about technology. And you're fitting people, um, you know, sort of supplying them with um, that technology. Okay. Um, and that's kind of a fun thing to kind of help people get what they need and, and all that stuff. And I was a, I was a, a purchasing agent 
Okay. So I learned about that and it was a position of responsibility, but it was also a position of being the whipping boy, you know, like mm. tie him up to the post, let's whip him, you know, uh, yeah. give him a good whipping. Uh, and it wasn't cool. It was a very toxic environment for mm. me. I did not enjoy that. And so there were elements uh, where I didn't feel supported. There were definitely elements where I felt like I was out of my, um, out of my element and yeah. I didn't have the bridge that I needed to, to, uh, to make the connections I needed inside to learn appropriately and all this kind of stuff. So there was a lot of things going on with it, you know, the personalities and, and that huge conflicts. But one of the things I did is I pretended that I was a CIA agent and that I was infiltrating um, this company and um, basically doing intel, doing espionage, you know, and, and it helped for me to have a very detailed imaginative experience because I needed to get through that difficult time. I was really not comfortable. Like I, I remember going to lunch and feeling my like my liver was going to explode because mm, it was just so yeah. much repressed feelings. Yeah. But uh, I eventually left that job. But but I, I remember how important that was for me. Getting from point A to point B was was pretending. You know, every time I'd That's put great. a you know a disc in the drive or a, a thumb drive in, in the in the computer, it was like oh I was stealing files, right? Like I would pretend that I was so excited. I was putting yeah. you know putting some kind of software into the system that was going to infiltrate and help help my handlers you know do what they needed to do. So I just kind of I think at the time I might have been watching um, Alias or something, or, or yeah. maybe it was a couple of years after the Alias ep- sort of stopped playing on the TV or whatever, yeah. but Download the um, files but it was the still in my head, centers. you know, and this whole yeah. idea that I was doing it. So games can can certainly be a way of learning, but they can also be a way of, of um, uh, enjoyment and helping you to reduce discomforts. Yeah. Strat- they are strategies for getting through things. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, how many cultures have learned to sing while they're doing their work? That's, that's, that's another way. That's, that's a game, you know, getting in why you work. Exactly. Get into a rhythm, you know? Um, I mean, you know, there, there are lots of incredible, beautiful, um, slave songs, you know, that, that, that came from, you know, such an awful circumstance. Railroads and yeah. Yeah. But my goodness, I mean, uh, look what, what beauty and creativity came from some tough, tough situations because they were using strategies. They were finding ways to make it more bearable, you know? Um, and it doesn't always have to be miserable. You might have a wonderful job that you love, but even wonderful jobs that you love can become taxing and can wear you down. Yeah. And, uh, these, these same types of creative ways of approaching those things, um, can re-spark that, that excitement, you know, for why you like changer. Sure can. Yeah, sure can. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's wonderful. Another strategy that I'd like to share mm-hmm. um, is more strategies for when you're feeling um, lost or uninspired by life, maybe even your own existence. 
you know, just saying, gosh, why am I even here? What's going on? Is this, does it get any better than this? Is maybe this is it, you know, and, and just not feeling good about your place in the universe. Um, some other strategies that are worth using that maybe a lot of people don't think to use them is to use this, this axis of, uh, it, it's it's really two concepts, and I imagine it as a plus sign, as like a cross. Think of it as like a crucifix, right? Okay. And and on you know let, let's say from from top to bottom that represents um, noise and silence, right? Noise and silence is like a vertical axis. Okay. Then the horizontal axis would be um, stillness and action. And a lot can be learned or gained or noticed by asking ourselves that question, hmm, am I more on the, the noisy side right now or the silent side? Right now, am I more on the active side or the still side? And see, maybe I could learn something or gain something by going to the opposite end. So for example, um, maybe my life has been too loud, too much, too fast, you know, that, that whole side of those axes, right? What can I gain from becoming still and becoming silent, right? Maybe I've been exercising too much and I'm getting worn out. Maybe I've been jogging too much, doing spin class too much, (laughs) right? Lifting weights too much. What exercise can I do that is still and quiet? Maybe it's time for yoga. Maybe it's time for holding postures and finding your stillness hmm. and developing endurance. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so by by superimposing those axes onto our life or whatever activities we've been doing, we can sometimes see that maybe I need the opposite end of that spectrum. Um, maybe I've been too quiet, and maybe I've been too still in my professional life. What would it mean to me if I were to speed things up here? What if I just go, you know what, come on, let's get some stuff done today. I got to get this done by lunch. You know, boom, 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 start to create a pace, a rhythm, and start to speed up your work and say, what happens if I start knocking this stuff out fast? Like, what if I had a deadline? Even though I have time to get this done, what if I didn't? How might this look if I knock it out and just be done with it? Um, you know, so so that's kind of an interesting, you know, way of approaching uh, our jobs, our careers, our lives, our relationships with people. Um, so it's it's silence and noise, stillness and action. I like that. That gives uh, lots of room for exploration. Yeah, it really does. Because you can yeah. apply those ideas in different ways. Yeah, yeah. and you, you, you can also um, match the ones that don't seem to go together. Like, can I be still yet loud? You know? Or can I find stillness in my speed, in my action? Yeah. You know? Um, or if I'm being very still, is there tremendous action in my stillness? And those things sound contradictory, but really they're not contradictory. Mm-hmm. You know, one's maybe more outer and one's more inner. And we've talked about this a little bit before. Yeah. This is um, the whole yang within yin, yin within yang. Yeah. You know, idea. can I be loud and fast right now? But inside, I'm calm, still, 
mm-hmm. and peaceful and quiet inside my mind. Yeah. You know, or, or the opposite of that. Right. These are good things to use when you're stuck, when you don't see a way to go, when you don't see a way to move forward. You know, those, those can be interesting ways. Well, speaking about, you know, having contrast, we talked about Tetralemma uh, in a previous episode, a couple yeah, episodes ahead. ago. Can talk about that again, just briefly. Yeah. So the Tetralemma allows you to explore ideas in a logical fashion by considering affirmation, negation, affirmation and negation, and neither affirmation nor a negation. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. So it's an interesting way of considering opposites and mm-hmm. allowing you additional perspective through um, that transition from each end of the of the spectrum it stimulates your ability to understand um, whatever it is that you're trying to understand what if it's an identity for example and you're trying to understand you know why is this belief so stubborn look at how belief and identity are connected let's say I really wish, that I didn't believe that I was unworthy, but it's the truth. I feel unworthy. Mm. It's a belief I hold. And I, there's some part of me that knows that isn't true probably, but there's enough of me that believes it. And I've been behaving and acting as if I am unworthy Mm -hmm. um, and it's affecting my life. And I can see that now, um, but I don't know how to change it. Mm. So then a person might, want to explore that. So one way to do that is mentally, but I always like to get people's bodies moving. So, you know, pick four different spaces on the floor, maybe even a middle space that's, you know, a meta position. Mm -hmm. And you just decide that, you know, one of those positions on the floor is, you know, I'm worthy. One of those positions on the floor is I'm not worthy. Okay. And you explore the transition by stepping into each of those positions and exploring them as, um, as deeply as you can. So when you step into the spot that you've marked on the floor, that's for, I am worthy, then you do everything in your power to imagine your worthiness. You try to see the world through the worthy eyes and hear your inner voice speaking about how worthy you are and listening for how worthy you are, feeling it in your body. Um, and you start to look at the world, hear the world and feel the world from the worthiness uh, mindset. Mm. And you let that settle in until you feel, uh, that it's complete. It's gotten, you know, it's really taken up real estate inside of your mind and body. Mm-hmm. And then you do the opposite. I'm not worthy. And you look for all the ways in which you're not worthy and you experience and step into that role and mm-hmm. think the way a non-worthy person would think and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And you let that happen. You just let yourself experience it. Yeah, I'm loving this because it gives you permission to go ahead and yeah. try on these different hats. Yeah, rather than denying it. Mm-hmm. Um, give it a, give it a space, you know, acknowledging what is, right? And then you'll step into, um, you know, maybe uh, I'm neither not worthy nor worthy. Yeah. And that's a strange position to be in. But if you if you sit there and go, well, what, what the fuck does that mean? You know, yeah. like it, it lets you step into a, a, a very different kind of a space than you're normally yeah. in. And so you, you wait until you really get a sense of, you know, what would that be like if I were neither worthy nor worthy? Like if, that, if there was some other option. Mm-hmm. And then of course, there's the opposite of that, which is I'm both worthy and unworthy, which is mm-hmm. logical as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah. we can look at 
parts of ourselves and say mm-hmm. that we feel that way, right? Um, right? And then you might even go into a meta position in between all of those things and just kind of like check in and say, what have I learned by exploring these four different positions? Mm-hmm. And how has this exploration caused me to look at whatever the problem was in a different way? And how does looking at it in this new way cause me to open up possibilities for action in my future? Yeah. When I'm triggered by something that would cause me to think about my worthiness, Mm -hmm. you know? So you can, in that final position, just sort of ask yourself those things and then your future pacing, you know, you're, you're actually looking at how this new territory you've carved out might look six months from now, eight months mm-hmm. from now, a year from now, three years from now. And, and then just ask that question, you know, is this okay for me to have these new understandings? You know, is this uh, acceptable that I, that I lead my life in a new way with that understanding? And it can be really, really useful. That's um, great. But I kind of started on that actually because there were, there's a there's a series of questions that we ask sometimes okay. in in NLP and it's um, well what would happen if you did so if anybody's listening out there there's you have a limiting belief ask yourself genuinely what will happen when you do or what would happen if you did either yeah. one of those questions well, l- l- let me just pick one we, yeah. we can try it okay I'm just gonna yeah. make something up oh you know I, oh I could never go deep sea diving really. Yeah, yeah. Freaks what would happen out. if you did? Oh gosh, well, I, I, I would feel incredibly vulnerable, like I'm gonna get eaten by some sea monster. A sea monster. Yeah, yeah, it would huh. totally freak me out. Wow. Yeah. So, what would happen if you didn't? If I didn't go deep sea diving? Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, then if I didn't go deep sea diving, well then. I wouldn't have that fear that I'm going to somehow be vulnerable to some monster attack. But um, I guess I'd never find out what it's like down there either. Well, is this something that you think would be useful to you if you could? Hmm. Well. Like is this a genuine thing that you'd like to actually maybe do, but you just don't feel like it? Like you don't feel like you could? Well, you know, I mean, I guess I do have a certain curiosity about what it's like down there and it would, it could come in handy if you were in some situation not to be afraid of the ocean. All right. Um, So take a deep breath for me. Okay. And then just let it out. So I'm going to ask you another question. Okay. What wouldn't happen if you didn't? What wouldn't happen if I didn't? Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd never find out. I'd never know what it's like down there. I'd never know if I could. Hmm. And how does knowing what would happen if you did, what would happen if you didn't, what wouldn't happen if you did, and what wouldn't happen if you didn't allow you perspective on your original belief? Hmm. I guess... Like, what does it reveal? I guess it reveals that um, it's... That, that I'm I'm afraid of the deep ocean, but I'm curious about it. Mm-hmm. And maybe it would be okay to start shallow. Hmm. Is that okay with you to start shallow? Knowing that you're going to explore deeper one day. Is that okay? Hmm. 
you know, I don't know. I guess if I got into the shallows, I'd find out if I, how I felt about going deeper or not. Okay. Is it okay for you to find out? Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I could, I could find out. All right. I might get in there and decide I, I don't have a desire to go any deeper and I'm satisfied with where I'm at. Or maybe I might get in there and go, it's not that bad. And even if you did decide that you don't want to go deeper, would that be okay? Yeah, totally. How does it feel to know that that's totally okay to feel exactly what you want to feel and to explore exactly what you want to explore? feels pretty safe. Cool. Are you okay feeling safe and doing exactly what you decide to do? Yeah, I guess now that you put it that way, yeah. Awesome. So what right. was the problem again? <laughs> I was afraid to go deep sea diving. Oh, I'm glad that's in the past, aren't you? Yeah, I sure am. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, was that fun? <laughs> That was great. So you're yeah. just kind of rolling with it um, and modifying along, along, along the way and just kind of rolling with the reactions mm -hmm. and then anchoring with affirmative statements. Yeah, yeah. As you make the shift, as you're laughing and nodding, you know, I'm saying, you know, I'm affirming what you just told me, basically. You know, mm -hmm. you, you used past tense when you referred to the problem. Mm -hmm. I agreed with you. Okay. And affirmed and you laughed and your coloration became yeah. red, right? Okay. You, okay. you had more uh, blood flow in your cheeks, yeah. uh, which is what happens when people make a kind of a little epiphany or they uh -huh. realize something. It's funny. Yeah, it's great. I, I could yeah. feel that all happening because I mean, you've done things like this with me enough to where I know that in spite of knowing that it's going to work out, it still works out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I can't help it. And even though I kind of just made that up about the deep sea diving. Sure. Sure. There's, there's an element of truth in it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so it, it, I still feel differently now about deep sea diving, even though we, yeah, because really you explored a, it, you created some, mm -hmm. some real estate in your head in totally. a different way. And, um, you know, th this is just a, it's just a tool, you know, um, some tools are meant for exploration and for mm -hmm. uh, loosening the grip of certain ideas, and other tools are more, more designed to help kind of push them through all the way, you know? Yeah. Uh, definitely, uh, if someone had a serious um, phobia of going in deep sea diving, a verbal formula like this mm -hmm. um, would... I think primarily serve to loosen the model a little bit, to loosen their idea mm -hmm. so that whatever other interventions that you do that reinforce it are really what help the person to, to um, transform and invite that new change. Mm -hmm. But this is important because once you get a person rolling and laughing and you get the coloration change like we had in your cheeks, mm -hmm. it's a perfect opening then to do um, something else that, that might really, really drive it home. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's the skillful use of these things yeah. because you you need to have a quote-unquote sleight of mouth. You know, you've uh -huh. got to be able to do those things uh, to take advantage and create, take advantage of the moment and the opportunity that's there, the window of receptivity yeah. where you can actually change things. Right. Well, you know, to get back to what we started speaking about earlier, um, I could see how you might, recognize in a session with a client that there's an opportunity to use this method. Exactly. Because their language patterns presented that, oh, this, this might be a good time to use exactly this idea of, you know, the tetralemma for, yeah. you know, we're going to use this. Yeah. <clears throat> but then I could also see somebody going into the situation thinking, okay, in this next session, I'm going to use this particular technique. And therein lies the problem. 
Right. And because yeah. then you realize the person's not very chatty. They're not really cooperating with your questions. And then right. you're like, well, what am I going to do? And I'm stuck. Let me just, you know, inflict this technique on them. Right. Let me do this magical formula. And, yeah. And, you know, and, and that doesn't work like that. And any good martial artist knows you can't go into combat thinking, I'm going to use this joint lock because I'm going to get them to grab my no. wrist a certain way. It's forget it. You can't seriously hope that that's going to work consistently. It yeah. won't. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. Uh, um, but you can go in with an idea that um, you're going to explore and see what presents itself. This reminds me of, this is kind of humorous, um, um, the, the, the Buddha's advice for dealing with, with people, right? He says, there are pleasant people, and there are unpleasant people, and there are people that are neutral, right? <laughs> and he just accepts all of them, right? Yeah. Just, this is a pleasant person. This is an unpleasant person. That's it. This person's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, right? And, and now with the tetralemma, this person is both pleasant and unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Right. I can think of actual examples of yeah. all four. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me <laughs> it's too. It's not even a hard thing for me to come up with. Anybody could. You um, know. Names will be withheld to protect the innocent. Yeah, and to protect the guilty. Yes, and the guilty. Yeah, <clears throat> um, yeah linguistic stuff. Um, you know, NLP has gotten a reputation for those things, but also, um, and I think this is a fair criticism is that you know that that's only dealing with things on a cognitive level um maybe some unconscious stuff too but there's kind of a cerebral quality to that kind of linguistic you know convention or trick if you will and that's true um what i'm exploring lately is as i continue to to dive into um my learnings in nlp is remembering what we were saying towards the beginning of the show today, this episode was that there are underlying principles that are guiding and it's not about the techniques. And if you understand these underlying principles, then what's next, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't claim to know everything there is to know about NLP. There's so much I don't know still. Um, but I've been at it long enough to know that I'm going to be continuing to do this for the rest of my life. Cause I love it. I absolutely love it. But mm -hmm. there are limitations to looking at change work and human psychology in just a kind of cerebral way. Oh, yeah. I right. know from my experience that there's more to it than that. And so what I admire is when I see folks in my field who are actually exploring, you know, heart and gut, you know, and physicality yeah. uh, and, and, and allowing that to be very much a part of, of the process. Mm. Um, because you could, well, you could be forgiven for thinking that uh, NLP is just a bunch of um, mental tricks and things like that. It, it's not true, but you'd be forgiven for thinking that at first glance because there's a lot of people that just do, you know, the language patterns and they, mm. they memorize the terms for every uh, linguistic convention and, and, 
and they're just in their heads the whole time, mm-hmm. and they're difficult to talk with. We, you know, I've used the phrase uh, "meta monster." You know, they're yeah. people who, who uh, are very controlling, and you know, it's, it's an uncomfortable experience. And then there are people who, um, you might never know that they did NLP. They're just really freaking slick and good at it, and yeah. you just feel so good talking with them because yeah. they have woven this pattern of understanding into who they are, and they're living it. They're living it in everything they do. Mm. Uh, the way they play sports and games and the way they love and listen to their partners and the way they write and the way they teach and design their courses. And, and these are people that I admire who I think are doing really good work. And there are a few people out there um, in the NLP community that I find are really great beacons of that kind of approach, like where I feel that what they do uh, given enough time, they, they, they're going to continue to discover more and more that becomes this larger and larger body of exploration, let's say avenues of exploration within the field of NLP. It's growing. It's definitely not only what it was in the late 70s and early 80s. There's some great stuff from that period, and there's new stuff that's opening up. You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. My name is Oliver Altine. I produce this show. I also wrote our theme music, which you're listening to right now. Please remember to subscribe to The Authenticity Show wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on social media and check out our website at authenticityshow.com. Thanks for listening and have an authentic day.